Today on Understanding Immigration, the Ukraine Crisis. TPS is not designed for that. It is designed to get them past an initial situation that is gravely life-threatening. Mm -hmm. And once you get past that, situations may not be perfect in your home country, but that does not give them the right to stay in the United States indefinitely. If this armed conflict ends under the Biden administration, they have the opportunity to set the basically set the groundwork for what future designations could be. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. I'm your host this week, Spencer Raley, FAIR's Director of Research, and I am accompanied by Jason Pena, also of our research department. So continuing the theme of the Biden administration so far, it's a new month. So we, of course, have a new crisis to go with that. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know by now that Russia has invaded Ukraine. And as of this recording, the situation continues to rage on and just get worse and worse. Uh, At this point, Ukraine has been able to keep control of Kiev, the country's capital. But it's, it's really doubtful that they can hold the city for any real length of time without significant outside support, especially now that we see that uh, Russia is uh, clamping down on the city just with, with convoys that are tens of miles long at this point. It just it turns into a numbers game eventually. You know, can, the, uh, can Ukraine hold out, destroy supply lines, and uh, you know, just hold out long enough until morale among the Ru- Russian troops are... You know, get, really declines and, and they give up on the process or is Russia going to be able to overwhelm them before that? So, of course, there's real no clear picture of how this is going to unfold even by the time we publish this uh, this podcast. Uh, and we could honestly sit here all day and discuss why this conflict developed, uh, what could have been done to prevent it, and whether the weak sanctions advocated by the Biden administration will ever have any impact whatsoever. But we are an immigration-focused organization, so we want to have a quick discussion today about the immigration-related implications, both already realized and potential, that this conflict is going to have on uh, the United States and kind of the global scale in general. So like most wars, like occurs in most conflicts, the Ukraine uh, conflict has already caused many people to flee their country. Uh, As of March 2nd, the UN has estimated that more than 800,000 people have fled their homes and millions more could leave if the situation isn't resolved uh, soon. Uh, the vast majority of these individuals are going to neighboring countries, particularly Poland. Some are going to Romania, uh, some to other neighboring countries. Some of the Russian sympathizers have actually gone to Russia, albeit that's a very, very small amount, less than, I think, believe less than 5% at this point, which kind of adds credence to the idea that most of these individuals do not want to be a part of Russia. So if you're going to run away temporarily, you're going to go to whatever country is most uh, welcoming of your your views on that topic. However, even in the best case scenario, if, if this all were to wrap up and end in a couple of days somehow, and you know, Putin goes back to Russia, withdraws his forces, gives all the land that has been occupied so far back to Ukraine, you're still talking about needing a significant amount of time to just repair and rebuild uh, in addition to uh, you know, bring, putting the country back on its feet. So 
That means that millions will likely remain displaced for, at a minimum, at least a few months, if not longer. So either way, whether this is dragged out for months or it ends tomorrow, there is going to be a significant uh, refugee uh, issue that results from this conflict. So Jason, I want to go ahead and turn to you and have you discuss just the broad implications of this a little bit, uh, especially how many... Uh, how many Ukrainians are currently in the United States and what is being di uh, discussed to assist that population, namely those Ukrainians that are here on short-term visas that may be expiring, and which would, of course, require them to go back to the country in the middle of a conflict? What, are we, what could we do to help them and what does that demographic look like right now? It's good to be here, Spencer. No, it, it's definitely there's a lot going on right now. So some quick fast facts. So mm -hmm. right here in the United States, we have 355,000 Ukraine-born individuals in the United States. Of those, 259,000 are naturalized U.S. citizens. We have another cohort of 96,000 that are not U.S. citizens. When we're looking about what we can do to help the Ukrainian, the foreign-born population here in the United States, we see that 30, more than 30,000 are here on some sort of temporary non-immigrant visa. That said, a lot of people have been talking about uh, giving Ukraine a TPS designation. Now, for our audience who are unfamiliar or who need a refresher, TPS stands for Temporary Protected Status. What this program entails is it allows individuals of a designated country <coughs> who are here on expiring visas or who are here unlawfully to essentially not be deported back to their home country right. if their country is going through some sort of natural disaster, epidemic, or in this case, an armed conflict. You know, and as, as, as Fair has chronicled for many, many years, mm -hmm. that this program, while it's well-intentioned, there are many issues surrounding it, and we want to make sure that not only are we helping the Ukrainians who are here in the United States, but we also have to make sure that our immigration laws are in place to where they're not being taken advantage of and that there aren't any adverse effects for the American people. Right, absolutely. And uh, situations like this are what TPS was designed to uh, to address. Right. However, many of, I'm sure many of our listeners are skeptical about any implementation of TPS or deferred deportation, parole, anything like that. And right, and honestly, rightly so. Uh, if you look at the history of TPS, like you alluded to, Jason, there's there's nothing temporary about. It. In fact, we like to right. joke that it's a temporarily permanent uh, program, <laughs> uh, which e e even in situations where. Uh, natural disasters in countries like you had in, in Central America and they uh, individuals from uh, Venezuela or Honduras, other places got TPS. When the Trump administration tried to end some of these TPS programs, he was sued for it. Mm -hmm. And at this point, a lot of those countries were still facing economic struggles. You know, sure. they don't have strong economies. They have corrupt politicians, but none of those particular situations uh, would make the temporary residents in the United States eligible for TPS. Economic uh, economic trouble is it does not qualify. Uh, however, like we've seen, these programs are typically renewed in, in eighteen month intervals right. in perpetuity. Uh, so it, this is one of these situations where, uh, while of course forcing individuals to go back to a country that's in the middle of an intense war, is quite arguably an inhumane thing to do. It's also unfair to the American people uh, who are dealing with 
right now the worst border crisis in the history of this nation to expect the U.S. to absorb potentially hundreds of thousands of more permanent migrants uh, during a time when our labor market is condensed, we're recovering from a global pandemic, and we quite frankly don't have a handle on our own borders. So obviously any kind of relief we offer to individuals who are obviously in a get difficult time right now needs to be put in place in the proper manner. So Jason, if the United States were to offer some kind of TPS or deferred enforced, uh, deferred enforced departure program or something like that for the Ukrainians in this country, what should that program look like? And ideally, how could we use that as a template to reform these programs going forward? Of course, Spencer. So as, as we just discussed, TPS, every, virtually every designation that has been placed on, on, the, on wh- whichever country, it just seems both administrations, whether they be Republican or Democratic, just seem to want to renew it at the end of uh, – at the, e- at the end of each period. Right. What an ideal situation for TPS would be is, and again, Ukraine could be the, the model example going forward mm-hmm. if, if it turns out to be successful. What could happen is once this armed conflict ends mm-hmm. and there is some semblance of the Ukrainian government being able to get a hold of the right resources, get the right infrastructure in place, so to speak, for their countrymen to return home. That would be ideal. What, we, what we're constantly seeing is, for example, uh, when the earthquake hit El Salvador in 2001, right. obviously it, w- it was a rough time for mm-hmm. uh, Salvadorans to go back to their country of origin. However, we are now in 2022, and that designation is still right. going it's on. It's still going on. This is a situation where, yeah, right after the earthquake occurred, it made sense. You don't want to send people into a dangerous situation that of could course. literally cost them their lives just because their visa expired in the United States. Well, how long does it take for that not to be a dangerous situation? Where, of course, individuals keep saying, "Well, the economy's not right there." I mean, there has to be uh, there has to be definite protocols put in place. Whether that is okay, power has been restored potentially, mm-hmm. or even just saying three months, y'all have three months to figure out how to go home and and work through the situation. Or in the case of Ukraine, it would have to be something like the end of armed conflict and, you know, power being restored to 80% or more of the country or something like that. Right. Instead of just saying, eh, it'll be open-ended and we'll just keep renewing it until we feel like it. Because, again, what that ends up doing is just kind of becomes a – a de facto amnesty, and then people get settled into the United States. They live here for 10 years, and then it looks really bad if you try to to send them back home, even though the status they had was never intended to be anything more than just a short-term bridge to get the country in a slightly more stable place so these individuals can go home and not risk their lives by doing so. Exactly. No, I mean, there has to be a moment, whether it be the Biden administration or any uh, subsequent administrations, we need to take a a long, sober look at, okay, is the armed conflict legitimately over? Because Mm -hmm. what what happens more often than not, we have the open borders lobby who will say, well, you know, El Salvador has high crime rates or Honduras, uh, they just got hit with like a a somewhat somewhat, uh, devastating storm or what have you. Mm -hmm. There's always some excuse as to why we cannot end these designations. I think going forward, if this armed conflict ends under the Biden administration, they have the opportunity to set the basically set the groundwork for what future designations could be. Right. So, if and when this armed conflict is over under their watch, they can analyze the situation and say, "Okay, listen, there's clearly a stable government 
here in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. There are the conditions, you don't have the, the hostility and the threat of Russian insurgents coming in here and threatening the lives of Ukrainians. Right. Now is the time to return. You know? And, and, and mm-hmm. again, this is how it should be with TPS. Again, if we were to, if every country, if, if every illegal immigrant here in the United States couldn't go back to their country because of economic, public safety reasons, then virtually every... every right. You, you would have literally billions of people in the United States, States. at this point because... I mean, again, as, as you alluded to, the open borders lobby is essentially uh, with these other situations like Honduras or El Salvador or anywhere right. else that has had a TPS status in the past, making the argument of, well, life isn't perfect there right now. Therefore, these individuals shouldn't be, or even life isn't as good there as it is in the United States. Therefore, these individuals should not be required to go home. Well, that's true for most countries. The vast majority of the people on this planet uh come to the United States because they're trying to get away from less favorable conditions in their own country. TPS is not designed for that. It is designed to get them past an initial situation that is gravely Mm life-threatening. And once you get past that, situations may not be perfect in your home country, but that does not give them the right to stay in the United States indefinitely. We cannot be the welfare system for the entire world. Right. So, yeah, that has to be... That has to be permanently uh, established. Uh, a hard deadline. Once these criteria are met, the program is over. I mean, and if something ha- else happens that's unrelated, like we keep seeing in these Central American countries, well, then you would need to go through a new designation of TPS, see if it requires, see if it can be passed, et cetera, instead of just you know indefinitely renewing the old program. So. Ideally, if such a such a reform took place, it would help end some of these perpetual TPS programs that have been going on for decades now. Right. Uh, while uh, opening the door, obviously, to assist some of these individuals who are in legitimately life-threatening situations. Of course, in addition to that, it is still very important to understand that the United States should not should not be expected to bear the brunt of TPS or any refugee program that eventually results because of this crisis, because as is this is this is essentially uh, entirely a European conflict. So it makes sense that Europe should assist most of the refugees that are displaced by this conflict. And of course, any refugees that come to the United States, we need to offset that by making cuts to uh, immigration programs elsewhere, or ideally <laughs> getting a handle on the situation at the southern border and reducing the amount of illegal aliens coming into this country because we can't just keep, again, adding new immigration program after new immigration program after new immigration program during a time where, again, our economy is condensed. It's not operating at the level it should be. And we are still dealing with a pandemic, even if things seem to be looking up finally. For sure. Um, so we have to keep the interests of American citizens first and foremost. You know, as much as we want to help everyone that's in a difficult situation, we can't do that if it's going to put Americans at a disadvantage because they require our attention first and foremost. And we need to ensure that those that are more directly related to the conflict and, uh, quite frankly, have cultures that are closer to right. individuals at risk are doing their fair share. And at this point, it seems like the only country that's really pulling their weight when it comes to uh, comes to this conflict is Poland. Because <laughs> if you look at the esti- the uh, refugee estimates on uh, as being tracked by the United Nations right now, you're looking at Poland accepting at this point nearly half a million refugees, and no clo- no other country, I believe, has even done a fifth of that. 
you're talking, you know, Germany, you're talking even Romania and, and just so many other countries nearby that have capacity. Right. Um, and many of which have been accepting refugees from the Middle East and other countries uh, that ideally should be pulling their weight here. But instead they're saying, hey, why don't you all just all go on to the U.S.? No. So there is that uh, there is that accountability. We need to uh, ensure that we are putting on European nations as well. You know, you're absolutely right, Spencer. You know, uh, last summer when we had the Afghan, the disastrous uh, Afghanistan right. withdrawal, I felt like this was a missed opportunity by the Biden administration to say, hey, listen, obviously we have some form of an obligation to help out the Afghans right. here who are under duress, but at the same time, neighboring countries, we could have done a an example there of regional resettlement. Individuals have similar languages, similar culture. They're much closer to home. So when that time does come to return and in mm-hmm. whether the country, whether the problems are fixed themselves or they can go back themselves at, a, at an appropriate time to, to go ahead and fix it themselves. So let's hope that this can also, mm-hmm. it, it's good to see that other countries in the region are stepping up. Right. And of course, the as we saw with the Afghanistan withdrawal, these were by far and wide, largely young single males mm-hmm. coming to the United States, jumping on evacuation planes. They're not vetted at all. Correct. Uh, they come from a country where most of the people in the country still hold uh, some form of radical Islamist views. We saw Pew uh, research polls from the mid-2010s showing that a plurality of Afghan residents believe uh, that suicide bombings are justified in some or many instances to defend Islam. That's a problem. Of course, again, a plurality doesn't even necessarily mean a majority, but it's a large number of the individuals in the country. And so when you're bringing hundreds of thousands of people in from a country like that, you have to go through a crucial an intense vetting process to make sure that bad actors aren't coming into the United States. And surprise, surprise, reports have just come out showing that a lot of people that are in the U.S., in the U.S. now, free in the U.S. now, (laughs) had connections to terrorism, even had their fingerprints pulled off of IEDs in Afghanistan, and now we can't find them. We've gone trying to find these individuals so that we can rightfully deport them, and they've disappeared into the country, which is extremely alarming. Now, in a situation like Ukraine... Most of the individuals there are highly nationalistic people. They want to go back home, right. unlike a lot of individuals in Afghanistan who have already said they intend to stay in the U.S. as long as possible. Also, the individuals fleeing uh, Ukraine are mostly women and children. Correct. Again, mo- many of the men have stayed, joined the armed forces. They're defending their country. So these are families that want to be reunited. They, they kind of have a, a highly nationalistic uh, attitude, so they want to go back home. They want to rebuild their homeland. And I think that needs to be taken into account as well. Are these individuals coming over as refugees desiring to go home, or do they want to be new migrants? The same is true with individuals with TPS. Right. Are they just looking for any excuse to stay in the United States longer, even though they are not qualified as permanent residents? Or are they wanting to go home eventually? They want to rebuild their country. They want to contribute to their societies. So I think that needs to be taken into account here because just like TPS, refugee programs were never originally designed and intended to be permanent migration solutions. Right. When we're looking at TPS designations, you know, again, I bring this up because I I think it'd be a good opportunity for the Biden administration to consider this. Since they got in office, they've granted TPS or they've added new designations to Venezuela, Haiti, Syria, Burma, Yemen, and Somalia. As of this recording, 
Sudan and South Sudan also receive designations. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be some sort of stop in the in terms of designating just right. bluntly giving countries TPS just for the sake of it. I think again, I think Ukraine could be the flashpoint to where we can change this program for the better. Something that puts the American Americans' interests first. Right, and 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 it would be really tragic if we don't use this as an opportunity because. The individuals we're seeing fleeing Ukraine have a very valid claim to this, whereas right. a lot of these other countries you just mentioned don't necessarily. And the Biden administration seems to seems to essentially be trying to dismantle any form of non-permanent immigration to the United States. It seems like their agenda would be to, if they could, give every single person that wants to come to the United States permanent residency as soon as they get here. Right. And that's part of the reason you're seeing them implement so many uh, abusing so many programs to try to keep migrants in the United States to the extent that they can then make the argument, well, it will be inhumane to send them home now. Right. And so, therefore, we must give them amnesty or we must give them permanent residency or citizenship. Uh, it's it's all part of that mass immigration goal that they have. Well, anyway, I think that's probably a great place to stop today. Um, so for everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new about this important and serious issue. I also want to encourage you all to um, listen to our previous episodes if you have the time. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends and family. Uh, To learn more information about FAIR and our mission, you can visit www.fairus.org, or you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, at FAIR Immigration, and we're also on Facebook. Go to our YouTube channel. we got a lot of great uh, videos there uh, on this topic and on many other topics as well. So until next time, this has been the Understanding Immigration Podcast presented by FAIR. 